if you raise your kids with everything and and don't get them used to struggling, then when life hits them in the face, no matter how rich they are, no matter what job daddy gets them, when when they get out of college and life smacks them in the face, whether they're trying to stay healthy and fit and they can't, or they're struggling with alcohol, or they're trying to make it through a tough relationship or whatever, any number of things that make life so hard, they're gonna crumble. They're gonna crumble unless they have some practice. I love this company, not just because of what they do, uh, but two of my best friends run it, Nick Huber and Mitchell Baldridge. It's called Ari Koseg, and they have a singular mission to help real estate investors spend less money on taxes. If you're an investor, a broker, or a property owner, listen up. This is crucial information. A cost segregation study can help you unlock the hidden value in your property by enabling you to write off components of your building faster. This means you'll pay less in taxes and have more cash in your pocket to reinvest or distribute to your investors. The team at RE Coseg are experts in this highly specialized field. They only use engineers to perform their studies, and they use the highest industry standards for their reports. Over the past year, they've completed over 600 Coseg studies and have saved their clients more than $65 million in taxes. For smaller properties, they do site visits fully virtually which makes it extremely fast and easy to get your cost seg completed. They also have an experienced team for larger in-person site visits. Big or small, they make it extremely quick and easy. And the best part, their initial analysis is absolutely free. They'll examine your property and show you how much you could be saving. Visit recostseg, that's R-E-C-O-S-T-S-E-G.com. I've been really excited and it has been cool to watch this company better pitch. They are the experts in private equity deck design. Whether you need a fundraising deck, a corporate overview and track record deck, or investor reporting collateral, they have you covered. Better Pitch is experienced putting together pitch decks for raises as small as a million and as large as half a billion. The best part? Better Pitch completes all design, copywriting, and market research. That's right. They pull all data, both on an asset and market level, and illustrate the research to support your investment thesis. Your days of moonlighting as a designer and analyst are over. Better Pitch is the plug-and-play option to deliver an institutional quality pitch deck that leads to a more effective fundraise. You send your raw deal documents, they design, provide market research, and refine your copywriting. And the best part? They deliver the final product in a PowerPoint file for you to use on future deals. Better Pitch is extending a risk-free offer exclusively for the Fort Podcast listeners. They will work with you until you're 100% satisfied, accommodating as many revisions as you need. Visit betterpitch.com. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-P-I-T-C-H.com to schedule your call today. Hey guys, if you're not following Fort Capital on LinkedIn, I would. In a prior ad, I talked about our newsletter but LinkedIn is just as good, except these are in real time. We post weekly, sometimes daily. We talk about career opportunities, information on our latest acquisitions and dispositions, updates across the Fort team, our latest real estate-focused podcast episodes, our most recent content pieces. Stay up to date with the number one fastest-growing private real estate company in Texas by following Fort Capital on LinkedIn. Every time I get on with you, I'm like, man, we have come so far in some ways. And then in some ways, I'm like, we're just getting started. Yeah, you sent me a uh, you sent me a text that we're about to chop it up tomorrow. And I keep a running list of notes in my phone of questions I want to ask you and when we're going to talk next. So 
I'm, I was born ready for this. I, I, I knew you would do that was have more ready for me than I probably had to use. So I, I kept it pretty trim to a, to a few topics. But I think it would just, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but the way that we met was Adam Blake put us together on a text message like four or five, four years ago, probably. And it's been one of the greatest friendships that I've had over the last four years. It's just been every time we chat more, it just gets better and better. It's cool. Yeah, man, I'm getting more out of it than than you would know. So I think you're, when I look back at my career, and I think I said this same thing last time I came on this podcast, but when I was doing my first real estate deals, I talked to Adam Blake first and he said, you got to talk to Chris Powers. And you're the one who said, hold on, Nick. And you kind of shook me and said, no, you cannot build a real estate private equity company that can last without charging fees. And it's not that you were trying to get me to charge more than what I was worth or rip anybody off. It's that to do this business, you kind of understood that this is an expensive business to do and there's going to be a downturn. And this was 2000, late 2020. And sure enough, 2023, we haven't done a deal in a sizable deal in nine months, but I'm still paying all of my awesome talent and we're not making a lot of profit, but we're, we're just like, we're in a really good position to keep these great people. And you're not desperate not be here today. We'd, yeah, that's right. And on that note, you know, and I'm not, I, I'll say this broadly, I'm not picking anybody apart, but often when people are challenging that, sometimes my questions to them will be, well, how many employees do you currently have? And then my next question to them, and, and people that are challenging that you should charge any fees or anything that's even, you know, worth paying people, how many people do you currently have? And if you were to grow your company to up to 50 people, how would you get there? How would you do it? And I don't think people, many people have thought that the 10, the people that you tend to argue with the most on this topic haven't really thought through that. And look, I hadn't thought through it when I first started either. I had no idea how I'd get to 50. In fact, I used to be somebody that was like, well, we can't charge fees. So shit, maybe I'm just going to have to find like a deal that makes me 30 million bucks one day. And then I'll just use all that money to grow the company with is like, well, that doesn't really work because you're never going to do a $30 million deal if you don't have people. So uh, our friend Eric Weatherholt said it really well on Twitter yesterday. He said the the amount of life-changing deals that one will come across in their real estate career, you can count on one hand. So you have two options. You have two options. You can hope and pray that those deals come and that you're well-positioned to capitalize and that you can work, 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 work like crazy for six months with your you know podunk team to get these deals done. Or your second option is to find a way to build a company around doing normal deals that can become great deals, but you gotta, I mean, look, the longer I'm in, and I'm, I'm new at this, like people are gonna listen to this, like, oh, Nick's, <laughs> Nick's a long time accomplished real estate investor, but I'm just learning that it's time that does this. Everybody makes real estate sound so complex. You buy, you use cash flow from whatever, you buy great assets in good locations, and then you just don't die. <laughs> and if you hold on to those things and you do nothing else, you just don't die. Yep. Amazing, amazing things happen in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Like that's how all the wealthiest real estate families that I've ever seen do it. They don't put very much leverage on. They don't take very much risk. They hold real estate for a really long time. It's a pretty good. It's a pretty good thing. The worst news for people like me and, and other people is like being active feels awesome. And the, and the a actual answer to most people's issues is like, just do nothing. Like you said, just don't die and just hang on. That's the best strategy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. 
we're going to start in parenting. That was the hot topic that came up. We're not going to talk about real estate today, people. If if you're <laughs> if that kills the episode for you, this is time to log off. We've talked about it enough, and I think there's way more important things to talk about on this one. But I thought a good place to start was you started a business with your dad, and I lost my dad 11 years ago. And I tweeted this the other day in anticipation of this. The only way I could think to, in business, honor my dad besides how I acted and how I behaved was I was going to name my company after him, a place he grew up. And and then that ended up sounding like a company that sold rum. It was called Rumstick Capital. And so I was like, all right, I got to pivot from that. So I guess I'll just try and act in my best behavior and honor my dad that way. But you actually got to start a company with your dad, which I think is so freaking awesome. So let's start there. How did it happen and what's it been like to work with your father? Yeah, so my dad came from a very traumatic childhood. I didn't know that he came from a very traumatic childhood with physical abuse and emotional abuse from a stepfather. I didn't know that any of that happened until I was raised and out of the house. But my dad kind of changed that trajectory because when abuse finds its way in or past trauma finds its way in or instability finds its way in, it's it's a common occurrence among generations. It's a really sad part of life is that kids who are raised by families with trauma and issues very rarely get it together. But I wasn't abused. And quite the opposite. I was lifted up and, you know, made confident and given a lot of great things from my dad. And it's just looking back like that is the biggest blessing that I've ever experienced in my life. The fact that I was not raised up in a, in a shitty home with an abusive dad is pretty unbelievable considering what he went through. But he he flipped that script and he changed the trajectory of future Hubers forever. It's pretty freaking spectacular. Did you all like get along like good friends or was he more of like a dad to you? Like, like kind of a friend, but really like a dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was a, a respect and a fear and a trust and uh, just a healthy a healthy level of all those things. A healthy level of you know, he was a, enough of a disciplinarian where I feared him at times. He was enough of a, <laughs> of a, you know, a good mentor where I had great times with him many times. But yeah, he, he did, he did his job as a dad. Like he taught me how to suffer with grace. And so he went off, I, he, he got me started in my company. If people don't know that he set me down at the dinner table and he showed me how a profit and loss statement worked. And he showed me a rental schedule for the truck and the lawnmower. And he, he got me a commercial contract on a property downtown so I could start a lawn mowing company. Fast forward six months, I was hiring a high school kid to drive me around when I was 13 years old running a lawnmower when most 13 year olds are put in a bubble and protected from the outside world by their parents. It's pretty absurd to think that I was running a 60 inch wide zero turn mower in downtown Tell City, Indiana as a 13 year old crossing four lanes of traffic to get from property (laughs) to property and then 95 degree heat in the summer. That's, that's radical. Like what my dad did, that's, that's very radical. Most parents would look at that and say, this guy's out of his mind. But that's how he set me off into the world. And when I go to college and think about, oh, hiring that first person for that moving company that I started, it wasn't that scary because I had to dig a 900-pound mower out of a ditch as a 14-year-old and just solve problems and, and strap a tow rack to my truck. And even though I didn't have my driver's license, I was pulling the truck around and pulling the pulling the lawnmower out of the ditch because you're just problem solving in those businesses. So, But yeah, my dad by trade was a VP of construction for a very successful developer. He was never wealthy, didn't get paid a ton of money, but he was running a very big business from site location to where we're going to build basically nursing homes and assisted livings and apartment complexes. Fast forward 
30 years of that, you know, he's built 85, $10 million plus buildings with a team of eight or 10 people in a small town, Telson, Indiana. He says, Nick, you know, I'm tired of this. Construction is too stressful. The old man's about to retire. The, the company vision is shifting gears. I can feel it changing. I need to come to work for you. And this was three years ago. And I said, dad, I'm not, I'm not ready. I don't have the money. I don't have the opportunity. I can't afford you. I, I can't hire you yet, but like, let me keep working. And eventually he, three months ago or six months ago now, he called me and said, Nick, I quit my job today. And I said, well, here we go. You're on the payroll starting today. And it was a pretty awesome feeling. Oh my God. My, I might just have goosebumps. I'm going to get into that in a second. I want to go back a second though. I have two questions. One, did you actually want to do this lawn mowing business? Like, or were you kind of like, damn it, I don't want to do this. Or were you excited about it? Or was it a negative thing at first that became a positive? Like, what were your emotions at the time that he was like, you're going to do this? I was a 13 year old and I had no idea how business worked. I had no idea what money was. All I knew is that it was 98 degrees outside and there was trash in these yards and this, and I was sweating and I just had the emotional stability of a 13 year old. I, I cried within the first hour of the very first job because there was trash around the grass. There was trash there. You know, we're, this is outside of a movie theater and a subway. So there's, and a McDonald's is right next door. There's a trash bag full of people's garbage sitting in the, in the yard. I just mowed over it, man, and freaking spit out shit loads of trash in this, in this yard. And I'm just mowing around. I'm like, damn, this is easy. This mower's awesome. And I'm halfway done with the yard. And my dad shows up and he's like, holy shit, Nick, you're making a huge mess. He, he, he kind of starts to discipline me. Then he sees my tears welling up in my eyes and he shifts into caring dad mode and says, okay, we got to pick up all this trash. <laughs> I spend the next two hours out there picking up this trash. And I'm like, dad, I fucking quit. Like, this is horrific. Why, why am I doing this? I'm 13. I'm crying. I'm sweaty. I'm sweaty. I'm soaked. There's big old semi trucks driving by. I'm in the middle of the city. I'm like, what is going on? Pulls me aside in the truck, puts a wet towel over my over my neck and says, okay, Nick, maybe I did get, get in a little over, over your head here. But he's like, you got to you gotta just finish the summer. He's like, I promised my boss that you would be able to do this. I kind of signed you up for this. Either I'm mowing this grass or you are. I, you just got to finish. And I was like, okay, I'll finish the summer for you. He basically did a little charismatic pump up talk, got me excited again and got me back out on the mower. Well, that night I went home and I sent invoices for $180 worth of work. And it, you know, it took me three, four hours to mow these lawns. And this is all the while my friends have not even started jobs at Subway yet three years later for $6.25 an hour. Two weeks later, a check shows up for $480. bucks. i am I'm 13 years old. And I was hooked from then on. I didn't complain. I didn't complain again. I wanted more jobs. I wanted to hire more people. I realized that, hey, I made $43 an hour and I'm 13 years old. Let's fucking go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then that might help answer this next question. What was money like in your household? Was it, I, you kind of mentioned the, the, you, you know, your dad's career, but was it, did you feel like it was scarce? How did they teach you about money? So I grew up on a 200 acre farm because my dad's a maniac and he bought a dilapidated, peach orchard out of bankruptcy in 2001. Very cheap. He couldn't sign on the mortgage. So his boss co-signed on the loan and bought part of the property. He bought part of the property back, did a full gut remodel. We moved out to Perry County, Indiana, lived in an RV for six months while my dad had to evict people who were like migrant workers who were squatting in the house 
We had to gut the house. We found BBs in the wall on the inside of the house, <laughs> gut the house, gut the kitchen and rebuild it. He rebuilt it with his hands in his free time while we lived in an RV for six months. So we got into a, an amazing piece of property. It's still in my household. I own that property now today. And we, we can tell that story too, if you want, but yeah, it's, my dad didn't have a lot, but he was insanely resourceful insanely resourceful. He always had, always was. So he made sure that I was going to the Bobby Knight basketball camp when I was 14, even though, you know, when I went to Cornell, I was on financial aid at Cornell because they looked at my parents' tax returns and realized that I qualified for, you know, 75% off tuition. So um, my mom's side, extreme frugality, depression era, to the point where there's, there's hierarchy or there's patriarchs of that family that are worth millions of dollars, but drive across the bridge to save, you know, 10 cents on gasoline just amazing values. That was one of, you know, the core competencies for me growing up. But yeah, I didn't go without, that's for sure. I, I had everything I needed and I thought that we were upper class, baby. And a lot of what you've just said, and I think this gets into parenting even more, is like, you can say what you want to say, but kids are watching what you do. It sounds like you watched your dad build this house. You watched, you, you lived in an RV. You just kind of watched hard work. You watched your mom's side of the family and how they think about money. So a lot of it, you just had the the luxury of getting to observe kind of good values. Yeah, I went to, I didn't realize that there were, there was a different part of the world until I went to college in Ithaca in the Ivy League and saw kids from wealth, kids from New Jersey, Long Island, both parents are attorneys and they would have a, you know, they, they'd want to go skiing at Greek Peak that weekend and they would go to North Face and spend $750 on dad's Amex to get a puffer coat, new shit. And then they'd get home and put it in the moldy basement and forget about it. That was that exploded my mind. I had never thought of that that exists, but it exists today. And, and we all know about it. So, yeah. I, and then when I started my company, it was I was pinching pennies to the extreme. We were buying $1,500 cargo vans on Craigslist, driving to the south side of Chicago to buy a box truck for $2,200. Like looking back, I. If I had a little capital and I had, you know, a sense of what's worth investing in, it would have been a lot easier in those early days. But I think it was a, it was a blessing, like how, yeah, amazing values that came up. Yeah. I got to TCU. It was a private university and, and, and look, there's folks in El Paso with money, but nobody showed it. And so we get, we got on campus. I'll never forget driving in and you see Range Rovers and Mercedes and, I just figured like parents are dropping their kids off and then you start seeing the kids get out of the driver's seats. And I had one of those moments of, oh my God, I'm not in Kansas anymore. Like I am, I've never seen this in my life. And for me, I mean, we can, you know, we don't have to chat about it today, but that was another like spark or maybe, I don't know, chip on the shoulder, but something that kind of a new revelation of like what's possible. I just had never thought that that was something that people did. I don't even know if it was good or bad. It was just a new way of looking at the world that I couldn't comprehend when I first got there. I kind of, I have a theory that it's a, that it's a blessing. Like I, I think that entrepreneurial endeavors, when you don't have, I think to start a really successful company, you need three things. You need operational chops. You need to know how to run a company. You need a network. And then you need like your own cash, a little bit of your own cash to start a big company, to do big things. And early on in an entrepreneurial endeavor, career, you have none of those. I was a college kid running around with no resources, no cash, and no network and ability to run companies. So I got excited about something really small and stupid. And these kids that came from everything, these kids that came from the $4 million house, and yes, they had a Range Rover and they had daddy's Amex and they, it just, the small opportunities that were necessary to take that next step, it wasn't exciting to them. It did not energize them. I got off the 
during my junior year, finals week, busy as hell, I got off my ass and ran around campus to pick up a bunch of boxes in my Cadillac DeVille. And I thought that that was like worth it and fun because, but I, I worked my ass off for 10 days, ended up with three grand. Like they can just go and swipe dad's Amex and get that in a heartbeat. So I got to find a way to instill some of these values in my kids, even though we're in a totally different position now, because I just think it's so important. And we're going to get there in just a second. All right. Your dad. Oh, real quick. So you bought the peach farm from, I guess, your father or from the family or bought it back into the family. When did you do that? Yeah. So my my grandfather bought half of my dad's farm in a way to kind of like give the family a loan. And also because he wanted to build his retirement home there. He bought that house and 100 acres. where We lived on a 200 acre farm surrounded by 380 acres of Hoosier National Forest. It's a beautiful thing. He bought half of it and built a house on it. Well, things changed. Grandma died. He got older. He didn't want the house anymore. And one day he listed it for sale. And it surprised everybody in the family. And my dad's like, oh my God, this is not what I signed up for. We made deals back when this home was built. It was chaos in the family when there were strangers touring the house that's, we're, we're at the end of a mile long gravel road on a 200 acre farm, two houses right next to each other, a hundred yards away, nothing separating them. And it was potentially going to be sold to who knows who. So I was lucky enough to be in a position to step in and, and buy that house, which was pretty awesome. And the property. Oh man, I just absolutely, that is one of the greatest things, I think things like that, that you can do. I, I love it. Everybody says money is not that important and it's not, that has not been my experience at all. I think having, having resources to help people who need help or to make things happen that need to happen. It's underrated in this world. Like having resources at your disposal, you can have way more of an impact when it comes to charitable giving. You can have way more of an impact when it comes to helping people you love and just security for not only you, but your entire family. And I haven't even dealt with a situation where somebody needs healthcare or like, you know, critical stuff. So it's just, it's a blessing. It, it very, very lucky. Well, I was just going to say to piggyback off that. And I think something I think about often, and that's really kind of resonated over the last few years is money magnifies your heart. The more money you have, the more you can see inside somebody's heart. Because exactly what you just said, if more money means more giving, more helping, more everything, it's a reflection of really what's inside. If more money means more houses, more cars, more boats, more airplanes, that says something. I'm not going to be the guy here to say which way you should go. But the thing that I think about all the time is money magnifies your heart. My mom, I found out two years ago that my mom was working as a school nurse for like $16 an hour and stressed about it. She couldn't travel to see her grandkids. She was going in and dealing with sick kids all day, doing admin stuff and changing diapers from preschoolers. Like it's K through 12. She was the school nurse. She got dealt all the, all the crap. And I told her to just to not go back to work. And I put her on the payroll and it's been insanely rewarding and just like the most impactful thing that I can do. And she sent me a text today. You got my oil change and maintenance on your credit card. I felt guilty too. Just wanted to let you know that no one was hijacking your cards. It's like, that stuff is like that. It matters, man. Like it matters. Like people ask, like, why would you start a business? Why would you do all this uncomfortable stuff? Why would you take this risk? The amount of people that you can possibly impact if you're not just going to go make it all about you is like phenomenal. It's so much fun, man. Ah, I want to come jump through the screen, give you a hug. That's awesome. All right. Dad enters the equation. I quit my job, Nick. 
let's make it happen. So what did you guys already have the idea of what, what y'all were going to do? Or are you like, let's figure something out? How did it kind of come to be that y'all were going to help people sell their businesses? Yeah, th- this was three, two or three months after my foot injury when I was laid up on the couch and I just was looking at my baby girl and decided that, hey, this is a moment in time where I have a chance to build an empire and I'm going to get after it. Like, I'm going to work. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to take the chance and I'm not going to look back 50 years ago and say, Nick, you had 100,000 people on your email newsletter. You had 300,000 followers on Twitter. You had all these people who were running companies. You had all these people buying real estate and you just pissed off the woke mob went around and played golf, made your money, had fun, and just sat around <laughs> and let that opportunity pass. And I kind of snapped to him like, holy cow, I got to get off my ass and build something. This is an amazing opportunity. So I started the web development company, the SEO company, the the pay-per-click marketing company, the property casualty insurance company, RE Costseg was growing. And I started just layering businesses that I needed to build all in the back of my mind thinking, hey, if I can build this foundation of businesses, if I can build a good business that can basically make all my other companies better, it's going to be like a superpower. And if I can get cash flow coming in from that, you know, 500 grand, a million dollars a month, and it starts to stack up and I start to meet all these operators that are phenomenal at what they do inside of my companies and get more and more confident in them, I can be buying businesses someday. Like I can, I can own a, like my own private equity company. I'm seeing the power of what's happening at Support Shepherd. It's doubling every four months. It's doubling in size. It's 25, $30 million worth from a good part of what I'm doing on promoting it on Twitter. I'm like, wow, I need to get after this. And my dad has something that nobody else has. He's charismatic. He's a good salesman. He learns really fast and he has Huber as his last name. People trust him. He's an extension of me. People are excited to get on a call with him. So my first thought is, hey, special projects, dad, like you need to come on. And I have these people reaching out to me by email all the time. Ever since I went on my first million and told people about this plan of partnering with entrepreneurs and growing this holding company, a lot of really awesome people have been reaching out to me saying, Nick, I want to be a part of it. How do I come and work with you? I don't have time to meet with all these people and vet them and see if they're legit. So I was just like, dad, why don't you just start taking these meetings with these people, see if they're legit, add them to your Rolodex and Maybe we take an equity stake here or there if you think it's worth it. Maybe we hire somebody who you really like. So that was the original plan. Then I just decided we might as well buy and sell some companies. I think a business brokerage where we're buying and selling companies could become really valuable, especially if it grows. You know, Not only can it make some cash flow, but we can see deals. We can get in with these owners. It can be a deal flow machine for me down the road. So I'm just thinking five years down the road. And frankly, I could just, I could afford to pay my dad his 10 grand a month to come on and work with me. So we decided to start a brokerage. And one of the first people that I put him in touch with was a, a guy that worked at Blair in Chicago. He was on partner track. He was making 600 grand a year. His name's Tom Dillon. He came in and, and met with my dad. And my dad called me right after and said, Tom is a, the, probably the most competent person I've ever met. We got to hire him today. And I'm like, okay, hold on, dad. I just put you on my payroll <laughs> a month ago and you want me to add somebody else. But this guy's a 10Xer as well. And he's gonna he's really the one in the back end, like with the finance knowledge, with the admin knowledge, with the the knowledge of mergers and acquisitions that's fueling it. So yeah, the the brokerage is about to go out with about $15 million worth of businesses to sell. We're gonna make seven or eight hundred grand worth of commission if we get these deals in. And the deal flow for new businesses is is strong. So I think it's I'm I'm excited about it. The brokerage is gonna be a a big profitable part of Nick Huber going forward. You said a lot. 
So your dad comes <laughs> on as special ops, special warfare project guy for Nick. But then you come in and you're and then you say, okay, we're gonna start this business. Tim Dillon or Tom Dillon comes in along the way. But I think the the, the part I just don't want to gloss over is once you nailed the idea. What happened in the proceeding? Because this, it, we're not talking years of time here. We're talking weeks, months between like concept to like we're open from. So when maybe this transcends like how you're starting some of these businesses, and we're not going to go through all of them today, but I think this is the one to talk about. But from the day that you and your dad looked at each other and said, this is the business we're going to do, what did the next 90 days look like? I moved very, very, very fast. So in the meantime, on the back end, I hired. A guy named Simon Purden, who's a ops tech a systems guy. I hired Colin Campbell, who's an ex-Gary V guy who came in to run my content. And he has three people working for him now. Simon has a VA and two people working for him. And basically, I built a machine that can spin up companies very quick. And I say company, I mean LLC, bank account, Slack channel, website, CRM, the basics of what we need to get people in the door and, and put up a, a landing page and a website on the internet. I'm going to stop you really quick. So you have a philosophy that if you can get those seven things up and going quick, you have momentum already. That's your philosophy. And I have a I have a superpower in that I can make one tweet or in one email, I can generate six, seven, 10, 60 leads for one of these businesses. So I can go from concept, hey, this is a business idea I might want to pursue to we have a web, we have a domain. So I always buy a premium domain. So I spend 10 hours on dan.com and find a premium domain, whether it's AdRhino, Bold SEO, WebRun, some of these websites I'm spending 10 grand on, a, on the web address, just boom, buy it. But yeah, from I want to be in business to let's see if customers resonate with this. I have a website built, I have an operator picked out. I have a CRM made. I have a Slack channel. I have a bank account. I have an LLC. And I am sending out an email to solicit customers to test the market two weeks later. That's how fast we can do this. Okay, so I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. Real great business. If I'm going to go sell it, man, I want to hire Goldman. I'm going to hire somebody with a brand name. And maybe you're not going after the big companies, but even like I'm going to go find the best business broker in the country that's been doing this for 30 years. Why am I going to, with my badass business with all this cash flow, going to hire a startup with a guy that's very well known on the internet, but he's never sold a business before? That's a great question, Chris. And I get on these sales calls sometimes to try to close these deals. And I'll, and I'll just say, hey, look, we've never sold a business before. NickHuber.com is not an experienced brokerage. We haven't been around a long time. We don't know precisely what your business is worth. Yes, we have access to all the tools to dive into all the transactions and look at what they're worth. We are going to outwork everybody. And we have distribution. We have distribution. Like, Are you going to hire a mid-market private equity company to go sell your $10 million company? Yes, they got more experience or they're going to put a 27-year-old analyst on it and they're going to send it out to their email list of people and put it on biz buy sell. Or do you want to list it with Nick Hubert and have him send an email to 190,000 people on his email list serve, make three tweets about it and get 400,000 impressions and find a buyer that way. And some people know me and trust my personal brand enough to try to sell their companies. And it's not going to be all of them. It's not going to be. And, and look, this is a business that's going to take years to develop. I'm already seeing it. With with RE CostSeg, we launched and we were very confident in CostSegs, but it took a while to get the big clients. I, I could, I have this friend who buys industrial real estate. He buys a lot of it. I texted him when we launched the, the cost segregation firm. I'm like, come use RE CostSeg. He's like, 
Nick, we got a contract with a big dog. Why would we use this company? Fast forward a year later, we've done a thousand cost segs. We got 20 people on the team. RE cost seg is an option for my friend who buys a lot of industrial real estate. Who's so, the asshole you know, that it, told you that? <laughs> it's you. <laughs> but look, it, it's, it, it takes time for these businesses to develop. Yes, I can get the initial traction. Yes, I can get those people who trust Nick Huber enough to come in and try my pay-per-click marketing company, try my cost seg firm, try my insurance agency, to try my business brokerage. But it's not for everybody and nor can we service everybody right away. We got to build the operations, hire the team. So I looked at it as, hey, Tom and De- hey Tom and Tim, we hired another guy named Juan Diego. There's three people in my brokerage team. If you guys can sell two businesses in the next year and bring in $250,000 of revenue, that's a win. That's a win. We're breaking even and the business will continue to churn on. We will get better and we'll be able to bring on bigger and more clients down the road. That's kind of the vision. And just to just to wrap up kind of the discussion on this, so you launched website on, leads started coming in. How did you guys get to a bar where, and maybe it wasn't like, again, you're just getting started, so you're looking for clients, but how did you kind of know like, okay, here's some businesses that we're really going to work with versus these probably aren't worth our time? Yeah, so there's a business that we're going out with next week that's a property management company a vacation rental property management company in central Indiana does about 700 grand a year of seller discretionary earnings for the owner. Great little business, almost $2 million of revenue. That's perfect. Like that's small. Our fee will be 75 grand to sell this company worth our time. And we're going to find a great buyer for that business. Then we have a laundromat portfolio in central Ohio that we might be coming out. We hope we win this bid. It'll be about 13 to $15 million sale price. Pretty close. The guy who doesn't quite call the shots, but he really likes Nick and we've got in and pitched their team. I can sell a laundromat and real estate portfolio very well with my audience. So I think it's a perfect fit, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's tough. And, and look, the most fun part of working with my dad, the most fun part is that he never really understood what I was doing. Like we would talk about sports. We'd talk about hunting. We'd talk about some of the things that I was working on in golf. We love to play golf together but he never really understood what I was doing on social media. Nick, why are you sharing stuff? What are you doing on this podcast? He never read my newsletter. And then boom, he's all, he's all of a sudden in it. He's all of a sudden in it, like talking to real people on the other side of the world that want to work with me face-to-face on Zoom. And he's calling me and saying, Nick, holy shit, like this is what you've built? Like, how are you meeting these people? Where is this coming from? This is unbelievable. So the first month was just, instead of jamming on How's the golf game? And when are you going to come down and play golf? How are the grandbabies? Like, what about the dogs this year? Who's going to make the quarterback? Who's going to win the quarterback spot? It's, hey, Nick, I just talked to a guy that lives in Peru, has built an amazing agency. He's insane, but he can't get US customers. He wants to partner with you to build out his agency. I think we should do it, blah, 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 blah. And the whole first month I was calling him down like, dad, we can't just take every opportunity. We got to slow down. But the main part was, is that like all of a sudden he understood and he saw what I was building and like, he was proud of me, man. He like said, Nick, I can't believe this. Like, this is going to be your coming out year. You're going to build an empire. I'm, I'm bought in. This is going to be incredible. And like, he told me that he was proud of me. And like that fucking alone makes it all worth it to me. It's just, it's just, he, he didn't know what I was doing. Say it again. How much does it mean to you that your dad is proud of you? I think over half the insecurities that people have in this world don't trusting themselves, not taking risks, not jumping on opportunities comes from the fact that their even their parents didn't like approve of what they're doing. And when I looked at my dad growing up, all I wanted to be was my dad, man. Oh, I saw my dad. I just wanted to fucking be him. 
So awesome. Yeah. When he, when he comes in and tells me that I'm doing amazing shit, that's what it's all about, man. I could, I could care less what people on Twitter think of me, what, you know, my neighbors think of me, my friends here in town think of me. When my dad, who I've been idolizing my entire life, comes in, sees what I'm working on and thinks it's cool and thinks that I'm doing amazing stuff, like that is why, man. That's why it's so awesome. Uh, you got me going. And I think your dad would, your dad's looking down, impressed on what you're doing, Chris. I mean, fuck. I mean, my stuff's more public. I share way more of it, but your, your empire's growing quite, quite a bit faster than mine and on the back end. So your dad's looking down very, very proud of what the powers are doing. Man, I appreciate that. I'm going to read you this thing. My mom sent me this email. This is an email my dad sent to me three days before he died which is interesting and it's a lot of peak of who he is and I haven't shared it publicly, but I'll just read it to you. I'll set the context. We were working with a banker and there was a way to get a loan and the rate down a little bit more and I needed help doing it. And there was a gray area that wasn't, it wasn't legal, it wasn't illegal, but it was kind of a, you know, everybody does it, but look the other way and he said, on another more important matter, I know you're disappointed about the townhome financing and you're probably disappointed in me. I'll simply say this and then we'll drop it. <sighs> I would do next to anything for you within my physical and fiscal capability to help you succeed. And I believe you know that. If I'd had enough advance notice to get you the 72,045 days in advance or whatever would have avoided that phony gift arrangement, I would gladly have done that, but I won't. And to the extent I have any influence over you anymore, I won't allow you to, I won't allow you to do something that is on its face illegal, unethical, immoral, or just wrong. And that is true whether we get away with it or not. In this case, I don't doubt that as the bank president said, everybody does it and that we should not have been caught. However, what does that say about us? Everybody does it because the world is filling with people whose sense of right and wrong is shifting and situational. If they can get away with it, it's okay. You're better than that, and you have the influence upon and respect from others to make them better than that by observing your behavior. This world needs more people like you. Lastly, what if, God forbid, that one in a million chance should come about and the federal regulators looking into the bank somehow question this loan? Would it have been worth the fine, the possible jail time, and the loss of my medical license? or your real estate license because of a felony conviction to save the 1% in interest? The answer is obvious. You did the right thing, and you can be proud of that. Love, Dad. That is being a dad. That, we could have gotten away with it. Everybody does it. The bankers said it was fine, but it wasn't right, and he wouldn't do it. And at the time, this was like 23, or I guess I was 25 when he died. So this was 25-year-old Chris. I was so upset with him in the moment. And my mom the other day sent me this and said, you remember this email? I don't. I just had it printed. It's up on my wall on a frame. And that will be with me the rest of my life. But it goes back to like being a dad, like, man, you just want to be like your dad. Or if you have had a dad that you're that you want to be like, like what a gift. And to the people that don't, my heart hurts even more for them. Yeah, what he did was left a very, very important lesson with you, man. I mean, he, he hurt you in the near term. This is so hard as a dad too. You know, it was hard on him. He hurt you in the near term. 
He hurt you in the near term to help you out in the long term. And sometimes as men, we don't know not to do that to ourselves. And to have that is incredible. Dude. Well, you've got two sons that you do a lot with. That <laughs> What's the plan? Because I know, and, and you, you and I both have talked about this, they're not going to get to live in an RV and watch you build a house. Maybe they will, but that would just be you going out of your way to make create an experience. That's kind of not how life works. So what are the ways that your kids are going to wake up and say, I want to be like my dad? I think the... Look, my my dad, he didn't have it easy, but he had an easy example because he was struggling. My dad was struggling and he was getting through to make a better life for me. Like, that's what he was doing. He he was like, well, Moses talks about it all the time. Wealth is a generational game, right? People come over from another country. They work their whole lives for an hourly wage, Saturdays and Sundays included, so that the next generation can have a chance and go to a decent school and go to college and maybe work a better job. And then that whole generation works their whole lives and retires so that they can send a kid off to the Ivy League or to, to just take a step up. And like my dad grinded and, and I have that, but yeah, now here I am and here you are. And my life has changed beyond my wildest dreams in the last five years. And it's hard, man. It's hard. Like, what am I going to do to show my kids that I'm struggling because life is hard for everybody. People say the more money you get, the easier life gets. And yes, that's true, but it doesn't stop from the travel delays. It doesn't stop from the rain happening on an event. When you got people coming over, it doesn't stop the sicknesses. It doesn't stop the hangovers. It doesn't stop the struggles with all these things that tempt us as men. It doesn't stop any of this other really hard shit that people don't see in life. So if you raise your kids with everything and and don't get them used to struggling, then when life hits them in the face, no matter how rich they are, no matter what job daddy gets them, when when they get out of college and life smacks them in the face, whether they're trying to stay healthy and fit and they can't, or they're struggling with alcohol, or they're trying to make it through a tough relationship or whatever, any number of things that make life so hard, they're going to crumble. They're going to crumble unless they have some practice. So the only correlation, I, I think about this so much, it, it's probably occupies. I love the fact that you made this tweet and said, Hey, what should Nick and I talk about? And almost everybody want to talk about life and how to be happy and how to raise good kids, because that's all I'm thinking about. And I've talked to a lot of rich people, I've talked to a lot of rich people who made amazing kids. And I've asked them like, what did your dad do different? And I think they all have varying levels of answers, but I think the one thing, the one main thing, the thing I'm going to try to do is make sure that my kids a, get practice making decisions when the stakes are low, meaning I'm not just going to put them in a bubble and make every decision for them all the way through high school and college like so many well-to-do parents do. And number two, when they make inevitably make bad decisions and they got to struggle a little bit, just like your dad kicked you in the ass and my dad has kicked me in the ass so many different times, I'm going to make them deal with the consequences. I'm not going to bail them out. I'm not, if they get a DUI on the way home from a football game, I'm not going to call my buddy who's a judge that I'm playing golf with and get them out of it. I'm going to make them deal with that. If they drop their iPhone and shatter the screen, then they're going to go a month without an iPhone until they save up the money to get a new iPhone. They're going to just live with the consequences. 
I think you just got to teach these kids to learn how to struggle with grace because life is a struggle. And too many parents, they have all the means, they have all the resources, and it's natural as a parent, especially as a mother, to want to protect your kid from struggle and suffering. Like, Who wants to watch their kid suffer? It's really, really hard to watch your kid cry, to be upset, to deal with pain. But you've got to make them get comfortable in those uncomfortable situations and you got to make them get used to struggling. So I'm going to make sure my kids are uncomfortable and make sure they're doing things that they don't want to do that are going to make them better and grow so that hopefully when they're 18 and they go off to college, they know how to make decent decisions and they've gotten practice making decisions. I went to this college with so many kids who got zero practice making decisions and life is one big decision. You're making a hundred of them a day and they all impact you. So if you don't know how to do it, you're, you're screwed. I love that. Is there anything that you and your wife disagree on in parenting? Or are y'all aligned on pretty much everything? Is there anywhere where she's like, Nick, go easy on them? Or, or is it pretty much y'all are speaking out of the same language? I think we are both, we're wired totally different naturally. My wife is like, her job is to love on these kids and make sure that they're safe and provide for them and make sure that they have everything that they need and be their emotional. And look, I, I get emotional with these kids too. I'm loving on them. I'm kissing them. I'm telling them I care about them. I'm telling them I'm proud of them every single night. I sit them in bed and I tell them everything I love about them right before they fall asleep. And they make me do it every single night. And if I'm not there, I have to call in and talk to them when they're in the bed and say, daddy, what do you love about me? And I got to tell them those things. So I'm a softie too. But my, my wife, my wife understands that it's my role. We have different roles. And my role as the dad is to be feared when you need to be feared, to have the right discipline and to make sure these kids know that they just can't do everything they want to do all the time at this age. My kids are, you know, six and four. So as they get older, it gets harder. And I'm talking to a lot of people who are really well to do and they, they have kids that they just, they can't get to, they're struggling with. And I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of that. I don't know how I would react in those situations. How do you feel? I mean, what are, you think about this stuff a lot too. What's your, what's your plan? And I also feel totally different about my little girl than I feel about my, my boys. Yeah, I think my my time my I continue to evolve. So one thing is, and by no means am I perfect here. In fact, and if you've listened to some podcasts, this is an area that I've had to improve a ton on and will continue. But I think one thing is modeling with my wife an amazing relationship. Just doing that is a good parenting. And so the relationship I have with my wife is is really important. And is it perfect? No, but is it something that I find I, I realize somebody said the other day, you want to know the quality of a man, look at the quality of his relationship with his wife. They said something even crazier that really stuck with me. They said, you can tell the heartbeat of a house when a wife or a mother walks around the corner. He said, if I'm a guest in somebody's house and I'm sitting there and I watch the wife walk around the corner and she's stressed and frazzled and has dark eyes and you can just tell she's kind of frantic, that tells me a lot about the husband. But on the flip side, when a woman walks around the corner and she's lighthearted and light on her feet and bubbly, and that also tells me a lot about a husband. And, and I knew what they meant there. And so so that's one thing. The second, and I think you you tweeted on this the other day, and, and I've totally changed my mind on this. You said it, and I've just been reading about it, is as financial circumstances have changed and the ease of some things have changed in my life. 
originally I was I was almost avoiding it and and creating a false sense of reality, like judging our life as if we had nothing, even though we had stuff and thinking, how can I just create situations, almost create this false narrative for my kids that they don't live in a world like this that they actually live in? And uh, the thing I've just really resonated with is it's not about creating a false world. It's it's about teaching them how to deal with the circumstances that they're going to have to deal with. And trust me, I think we can all sit here and say there's some benefit to having money, but it's not all great. It creates as much pressure and stress as it creates good. And you see, that's why it's it's rare to see really wealthy people that have great families and great kids and it all put together. In most cases, it all kind of unravels as as things get bigger. And if you can do it all, I think that's that's special. And so teaching my kids to deal with what they have, which I don't know what that's going to be, but also never letting them know that this is all yours. You're entitled to all this. If anything, they might be able to be a steward of it one day. But they're certainly not. They weren't born on third base. They were born on third base. My hope is it's because they can say I had a mother and a parents that loved me and that they loved each other, but not that promised me from a young age that I was going to have it all. And to your point of creating times where they're going to have to deal with shit, I'll fight that, especially with two daughters. Now, my son's only one. I don't know yet. Your sons are older. But golly, I don't want my daughters to suffer for anything. They're with, and, and again, that's just a little girl thing. They're daddy's precious little girls. But I also, you know, you see a lot of, you, you see the trauma that creates people later in life that have never suffered. Then they get in the real world and they're just, it's not even their fault. They just don't know how to, they don't know how to exist. So those, those are some things that come to mind. I have a little girl and I feel totally different about her than I feel about my little boy. Again, I don't want to watch her suffer. I don't want to watch her cry. I want to help in every single way possible. But my biggest fear is that my daughter will become what I refer to as like a a bum magnet as she gets older. And these bum magnets are what I call women who are just insanely insecure and they let men mistreat them. I want to show my daughter how a woman should be treated by looking at how I treat her mom. I want her mom to be very secure and feel safe and feel loved and feel protected and and be able to exude and live how she wants to live because she knows that I'm not going anywhere and that she can trust me. And if I raise my daughter with a very secure mother and I convince my daughter how she deserves to be treated by man, I just hope that she has the courage and it's the hardest thing in the world to do. I hope she has the, the courage to leave that guy who's going to treat her like shit leave that guy who's going to cheat on her, leave that guy who's going to emotionally bully or abuse and bring her down and tear her down and try to make her insecure. I think I, I have this theory that 30, 40% of men, their whole MO, their whole business is making their wives, their, their girlfriends, their significant others as small as possible so that they have the most control. And it's so, so, so sad. And I would not want that for my little girl ab- above all else. But it's, it's really hard. Like, I want to raise her to do whatever she wants to do. And if she's got the business bug, boy, am I going to develop that? But the odds are she probably won't just by genetics and how she is and who she is. So I just want her to be able to pick a good leader of the family if that's not going to be her role. And it might be her role. She might be the leader, but two, if there's two leaders, it doesn't really work well. There's just like how high powered relationships 
are really tough on some of my friends and and in my experience. But yeah, it's I'm just gonna treat her mom how like I just want her to watch how a woman really deserves to be treated and how I'm not just gonna call the shots. I'm not gonna disrespect her. I'm not it's not gonna be I'm a I'm a dictator in our house and what I say goes. And I think that's when my wife and I are such an amazing team because she is really, really good at reading people. She's really, really good at looking at four or five factors of a decision, helping me make it. She's really, really good and competent and organized at dealing with our physical world. It's double the job that I have of looking at a computer and try to raise invisible numbers in a bank account somewhere. So having a competent partner is insanely underrated. I didn't know how competent and such a badass my wife was until we started dealing with shit and kids are kids are hard and my wife's a my wife's a rock my wife is a badass too and you did exactly what you just said you better not clip up what i said either there because we'll, i'll get canceled on twitter for misogyny yeah for caring about your wife no my wife is a badass and 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 when i really look back like my life is made so much better because of her support and just what she's able to take care of. And I don't care what anybody says, the job that you and I have is immensely easier than raising kids. And I don't always say that in my weakest of moments, but I get left with the kids for three or four days. And oh my gosh, I am like, I'm like a pool of water. I can't, I can't keep it going. I'll tell you a quick story, kind of on topic, kind of off topic. You talk about the fear and the love for kids. My wife calls me the other day and she's like, hey, I can't find Connor. That's our that's our middle daughter. I haven't seen her in about 30 minutes. I've been downstairs feeding our one-year-old. And I'm like, oh, yeah, she's probably hiding. I'm just going to make it long story short because we don't have a ton of time. An hour and 30 minutes later, cops are everywhere. Families are in the neighborhood. We've searched every inch of the house. My optimism ran dry at about 45 minutes. And you talk about a fear that you've just never felt before until you think you're missing a child. And your neighbors have pools. You're you're in a neighborhood where everybody's got a pool and pools, alleys. We're looking. And to be honest with you, just the way it's all oriented in my daughter, she, you know, she's four years old, but she she can get around as I I just she can swim. I just wasn't thinking that she had fallen some. I was thinking somebody might have picked her up. And I probably watched too much Dateline or something of that nature, but you go 45 minutes in and I'm Mr. Positive. And then all of a sudden you've kind of searched the block twice. Nobody's found her. Nobody's called. No neighbors have called. And then it starts sinking in that we have a whole nother issue. And I get home. We're about to call Amber Alert. We're about to call the Fort Worth media and and make this thing public. We have cops everywhere, families everywhere, already in the streets looking And all of a sudden, cop upstairs, they had still kept searching the house, which I told them was useless, goes, we found your daughter. And my first instinct was, that's probably not good either, that we found her at the house because we've been screaming her name for an hour and a half. And that little booger- She fell asleep. She fell asleep somewhere. She crawled underneath our bed where we keep suitcases under our bed when we're not using them. That's where we store them. She had crawled like in between two of them to where when you got down and looked under the bed, you couldn't see her. You just saw the suitcases on both sides. And she had fallen asleep and she sleeps like me. She can sleep through a hurricane. And if we're ever in, if you're ever with me, if you're listening to this and you're ever with me and something bad's happening and I'm asleep, I'm sorry, but I'm probably not going to be able to help you because I don't wake up for anything. 
Same thing with her. The cops flashed a flashlight under there and saw her little foot hanging out the back. And that's how we knew she was still at the house. But it just goes back to kids. Like the feeling I had last Tuesday was the worst feeling I've ever had in my life, which is uh, my child is not longer. Uh, my child's not here. And I, again, it, it just reminds you how, like what's important. Yeah. You hear stories, heartbreaking stories and look, money, success, fame, none of that protects us from the fear that we all have of losing a loved one and God forbid a kid, Jesus. One more thing on my dad. I want to say one more thing that I, that I forgot. Another thing that's so rewarding about this is that I think my dad found his thing. And when a man finds his thing and when he finds something that he's good at and he sees potential in and he sees the ability to grow a big ass business, like my dad just didn't have the internet. Like he was phenomenal at what he did. He's insanely talented. He just didn't happen to become an influencer at, at 29 years old like I did and just get the world of opportunity thrown at him. But the guy's a killer and he's on there and he's doing these deals and he's talking to these people. He's making things happen and I can just see it and he can see it. He can see building a brokerage that's doing you know 10 million a year of revenue with five or 10 reps and he's traveling around playing golf with people. He can see it, he can feel it. And he's having a freaking blast. And it's just, that's part of the fun too. If this if this thing goes, if this business pops, and I don't know if it will, but if the business goes, he will have built it. I am not helping him. I am ignoring his calls. I'm saying, dad, figure it out. Do what you want to do. And if he builds it, he's going to say, I freaking built that. And like, what man doesn't want to do that crap when he quits a job that he's been working at for 30 years? If you're watching this on YouTube or it'll be in the show links, but it's called You Have What It Takes, what every father needs to know. And, and the skinny of it, it's only 50 pages. If you're looking, it's you can see it's a thin little book. Basically, every man and every little boy, and it never goes away, they want to know that they have what it takes. And every little girl that becomes a woman wants to know they're seen and that they're beautiful. Those are what drive our, our instincts, our biological instincts. Do men have what it takes and are women seen and are they beautiful? And it's what you just said, even your dad today building it. Now it's a game of like, do I have what it takes to get this done? And that is what drives, that is the underlying current of most males on this planet. And the answer is, yeah, we all have what it takes. And the world today is designed in a way that it often makes you feel like you don't. Social media has been the gasoline on humanity to make a lot of men in this world feel like they don't have what it takes. And especially women feel like they're not beautiful enough or they're not seen or the, I mean, all you see, and I think about my girls getting on social media one day and just what, what women deal with. And man, it's just, it's just a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. The world's hard. I mean, that's the bottom line. The world is freaking hard. It's hard on men. I, what I see that's also really sad, Chris, and I want your thoughts on this. I see men who come from successful, very, very successful fathers or parents or mothers and people who have built that big business and maybe they're taking it over and somehow they don't feel happy. Like they don't have happiness, even though they're amazing and they're doubling and tripling the size of the company and they're doing amazing things in their own right and they're building. They just have a chip on their shoulder because and rightly so, a lot of the jealous crabs in a bucket, these people who just want to see people lose, will make these remarks like, oh, they're just doing it because daddy built it and all these things that are so cruel to a man and they just they put the knife in and twist it. Man, I just hope that my kids don't feel that and that they can be proud and that they can 
take over and not have that chip where they got to work 70 hours a week and stay in the office, you know, who knows how long and not, you know, I I don't know how to think about that and how to feel about it. Yeah. I think, and I can speak from experience as someone that put business and work above everything in my life, everyone and everybody and everything for a long period. I think if you're going to work 70 hours a week, it's in the context of, is that your, is that the God of your life or is that just something you love doing, but, but, but you're able to maintain other areas of your life, how you would want. And for me, it became really clear when most of the most important things that I would have said were important where I would have rated them a one or a zero and my business was a 10 that I had to start rethinking it. And I can only speak for myself. Maybe there are people that can work 70 hours a week and still maintain an eight or nine or 10 in other categories. I knew I couldn't and it wasn't sustainable. And that was a gut check. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not easy to balance. And I think another thing about success and like, as you get more of it and as you get more people around you and as you get this flywheel of people starting to look up to you and things going well and your business is rocking and you have wealth and you have opportunity and you have all this stuff. And God forbid, you also have 300,000 people who follow you on Twitter and the comments coming in and the people sending you nice things in DMs all day. It's kind of a dangerous thing because you wake up one day and you, and you, this is going to sound really bad when I say this. You wake up and you just for a split second one day, you start to kind of look at yourself in the mirror as your own God. That sounds horrible. And it's not truly how I feel, but it's almost like you got all these people around you. They're all yes men. They all want to be a part of it. They all want a piece of you. You're just kicking ass at everything and things are going your way. It's dangerous. Like that success can be really dangerous. You can start to look at yourself as your own God. You start to mistreat people around you. You start to lose your humility. You start to change as a human being. And I'm, I'm fighting it, but I can't, I would lie to you if I didn't say that I'm starting to kind of buy it and it's scary. It's scary about what can, what can happen. I, I guess that's a embarrassing, I'm, I'm pretty embarrassed to say that, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's a real thought. A real I think thought. it's, I think a lot of people deal with it and it's something that I've dealt with. I think anybody, the world wants to put you on that role but they also want to see it all come crumbling down and not to take it back to the Bible, but you can build your life on quicksand or you can build it on the rock. And quicksand is status, is money, is the the DMs. That shit goes away tomorrow. What will be left if all of it go away? And I don't have the answer, but it is a it is a constant surrender and remember humility and even more so in the position you're in. And it's going to get worse. And I think the beauty of it all is you have an opportunity to model what that could look like really well, or you could fall into the trap that a lot of insecure men in this world fall into and become just the next guy with a power struggle and insecure power struggle. And if we tie it back to like parenting and being a husband, it's going to show up there too. It doesn't just show up online. It shows up everywhere. Yeah. There's, there's gotta be some reason why all the most successful men in the world are rough they're just i'm not in their homes but it's they're not staying married they're not spending time with their kids and and this ain't even a political but look at the look at the people that run countries and high-powered politicians and we've gotten so used to letting these people that know i mean it's so obvious and on both sides of the aisle and countries all over the men that, and maybe some women, I don't know, but it's mainly men that run a lot of this stuff are 
on the biggest power trip you've ever seen. It's hard not to. Well, somewhere along the way, they started looking in the mirror and starting believing their own bullshit. For me, like the, the problem with my path as a social media influencer, I know that to get to that next level of Grant Cardone, Ty Lopez, Tony Robbins, these people who like there's influencers and then there's influencers, there's, there's C and D list influencers. I'm a C and D list influencer right now. I'm, I'm famous in our own little community on Twitter, but to get to that next level, there's one way to do it. And you have to yell down people's throats how awesome you are and how much money you make. And you have to take pictures of yourself at your really nice real estate and on your private planes. And like, I know that I have to do those things to get big. I know that I'm going to have to do some of that stuff. And I got to tell people how much money I make, which I do. And then people just start to come and they start to want a piece of you. And everybody in the whole world's selfish, like newsflash. Everybody in the whole world is selfish. I'm selfish and other people are selfish. Luckily, two people who are selfish can work together and have a mutually beneficial relationship that's very prosperous. Men and women, married couples are both selfish. We're doing it for ourselves. Business is no different. Like I'm interacting with every single person because I'm selfish. But when I'm when I'm tweeting and when I'm writing online, I have people coming all over the place. Hey, Nick, I want to be a part of what you're building. I want to come work for you. I have to also understand that they don't like me just because I'm Nick and they want to help me. They are selfish as well. So if this all goes away, I'm going to be standing alone with the core relationships that I build and the people that I care about and the people that care about me. So staying focused on the close to home stuff is you know, easy to get distracted away from. Well, I will continue to challenge you because I don't think I'll be the first one to say that might be the playbook that you've seen and you're just going to become like all the rest of them, a famous guy that hates himself. Those people aren't happy. Those people are not happy. You already know you're not going to be happy doing it. That's a playbook that somebody said, but you don't have to do it. The most famous human being of all time, whether you believe in him or not, might be Jesus Christ, did the absolute opposite of everything you just said. And there's a reason why this day and age, whether you believe in him or not, he still exists and might be the most famous name that there ever was and did everything opposite. And I think we're at a point in the world the world has gone far. I mean, we're, I think we're all experiencing that now. The opportunity to be the guy that did it differently is bigger than ever. There, When it's darkest out, a little light shines the brightest. And I would just challenge you with your platform and everything that you've been given, you have a choice to make. And I would tell you, if there's even a sense that your daughter is going to wake up one day and get on the internet and be like, what the fuck is my dad doing? I would really gut check it because you will live in a mental prison the rest of your life in regret. That's a tough thing to hear, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I'm at a crossroads, to be honest. Like I know a part of me, part of me is battling with, I have this duty to get And it. I say that because I love you. I know. I and know I you support do. you. I love and you I want too. you to win. I love you too. And I think true friends are the ones that are not afraid, that are not afraid to give you the uh, stuff that you don't want to hear. I feel like I'm at a crossroads. Like I can... I can keep doing what I'm doing and stay in my community of people online, or I can try to get this message out. I can try to become a New York Times bestseller. I can try to move over to Instagram and go even bigger and, and chase people like Cody Sanchez and Alex Hermosi and play that game that I just told you about playing and try to grow this personal brand. Because part of me says, I'm going to do it in the right way. And I'm trying to reach as many people as possible with this message of sweaty startups and simplifying you know, this stuff. 
You know, the irony is like the what I think of when I really think of you is someone that has helped the common man that is you're not trying to help the next tech entrepreneur to be a billionaire. You're we've just talked about humility. Like, I think the part in the market is what we've just kind of talked about. People are craving the most, which is sincerity, humility, forgiveness, like the basic things and look, there's you can build the, the the brand in other ways, but I don't know if I said like who everybody that you know that wants to be like Grant Cardone, do they align with the shit that you actually care about at the dinner table? You would probably be like, no. I think you your message in the sweaty startup world, just a sweaty startup is humility. That's like another way of saying humble yourself and do something that you don't have to be the king of the world for. You've already laid that foundation. And I think when I think of you as you've is somebody that's cared about helping other people succeed and you've kind of gone after the forgotten market. The the real market wants to tell everybody how to be a billionaire. And you're not, I'm not saying even if you take it to money, like your message really has been this message of humility in some way. And then when I said, when I said Grant Cardone and Ty Lopez, I definitely didn't mean the same values that those guys exhibit. I just mean the, the level, like the, the Tim Ferriss and the James Clear and these folks who are influencing a lot more people at scale, Ryan Holiday. Okay. Boom. Tim Ferriss, James Clear, Ryan Holiday, go more that direction. Those guys have built something that they can be proud of. Ty, when you said Ty Lopez and Grant, okay, if we're just talking about size, I get that, but damn, dude. And I'm not here to judge. Like, if anything, I have no, I'm, I've never seen me tweet about Grant Cardone or say anything. I'm just saying, you kind of said it when you were talking about it is taking a picture in front of a, a plane. That's not Nick Huber. That's not Nick. That's what some digital marketing strategist is going to tell you gets clicks and you're going to be rotting in your heart. It, what's, what's Tim Huber going to say? I mean, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I made a mistake when I said Grant Cardone and Ty Lopez. Yeah. I, know, I know what you meant. I know what yeah. you meant. I just mean, like, it, try to grow this thing to reach more people and try to grow this personal brand to to where that I am fighting against, okay, yes, there's the the people who idolize Chamath and, and these tech moguls who have built these giant companies and have all this influence. And then there's the guy who's going to stick up for the little man. And Cody's doing a lot of it, which is great. And... I just think it's, I think it's an important message. So I'm, I'm kind of torn on how big do I try to go with this personal brand? And I think the, the, the more trust you build with, you can do, you can build a smaller quote unquote, like following, if you're just looking at followers online, but building those followers for the right reasons, I think is worth more than the 10 million followers that are just following to like I, I mean, you know it better than anybody. Like you've you've kind of mastered the game, and I think if anything, I just think it's part of the journey. Like you're going to get tempted minute by minute, hour by hour, as as time moves on. And man, I just think you have such an awesome opportunity. And to be clear, I think you're already on that track. I don't think you're you're off as building a brand that dads would want to go home and tell their kids, like how we started the whole thing. Like that's who you want to be when you grow up. Yep. Beautiful advice. I was going to ask you as part of this, like, what do you think I'm missing? What do you think I could be getting wrong here? And I think you just answered it in the last 10 minutes. I think you just got to think about your kids. One day they're going to be able to get on the internet and read and they're going to see everything you've ever put out there. 
And some things you'll be able to say, kids, I, I, I was young, I was dumb, I'm learning, this is how it went. But they're going to, I mean, that's the world we live in today. Like eventually, like when we grew up, you kind of didn't know what your dad did as a teenager or in his 20s. Like he kind of told you and maybe you see some photos, but like there's no proof of any of it. That's going to be really interesting is like we're getting to this generation now where like you can see your parents online and you're like, holy cow, I thought this person was amazing. And then I started reading their stuff and I realized they're as dumb as I am. <laughs> that, is, that is so true, man. So true. I'm, I mean, look, I'm already looking back at posts I made a year and a half ago and I'm embarrassed. Like I'm already kind of moving away from the dumbass posts that don't move my brand forward at all and just get a bunch of eyeballs. But yeah, it's a, look, it's a tough balance. It's a tough balance. Like people want to, people trust the source to the extent that the source has proven that they're actually who they are. And so many of these gurus and these moguls, they don't open the books. They don't show people what they're actually doing. They don't share the ins and outs of their deals and how how they're making money, where they're losing money, where things go wrong. And so I, I want to flip the script there at least, where at least when somebody doesn't like me on the internet, that's great. But you can't tell, you can't say I'm not just putting myself out there. Like I'm, I am putting myself out there and learning a shitload. Like if I didn't put myself out there, I wouldn't be able to get this advice from you right now. It's a beautiful thing. Dude, I, and then I'll say this and I've said it on, I think the greatest, one of the greatest gifts that you have that I've noticed is your willingness for like raw feedback and then what you do with it. And you don't take it personally. I, and you're just biased towards action. I've never met somebody that I've taught that like the next day was doing it better than I did. I mean, you take things seriously and then you're willing to kind of pivot. You don't live on one road and my life has been set because this is who I am and I'm not going to change it. And you model that really well. I mean, look, yeah, you've said some controversial things and we can laugh about them. I've always said, if you know Nick, you know that's not Nick. It's a, it's a strategy. And my guess is five years from now, your strategy will look different than it does today. But I just think I would just say to which much has been given, much is expected. And you have a real opportunity to be a difference maker and not just follow the path. You can blaze your own trail. And I think my my job as your friend is to try and at least be somebody that is trying to push you in the right direction because I need that that leadership too. Yeah, I'm, I try to surround myself with people, like a, a short list of people that can tell me that I'm messing something up and I'm going to listen because the, they're probably right. <laughs> I know I know a lot of the people in your life. I mean, we know offline who we chat with and you, you've surrounded yourself with some really people that I admire a lot and respect a lot. And that says a lot about you. And so again, it. just keep those little kiddos, keep that little girl in mind as you're, as you're strategizing at the, before you press click on the next strategy or the next, am I going to take the, is like what my daughter's going to see this one day. Mm -hmm. Yep. I like it. And my daughter's friends in school and everything else. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be You're a like, mess. Damn it. It'll be a mess. There's already some shit they're going to see. Damn it. I'm in that boat. There's like, I thought about hiring this company. You can hire them to go around and kind of clean up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> That's probably wise. That's probably wise. <laughs> we got 10 minutes left. I was going to ask you something. This is like totally pivoting the conversation, unless you just kind of want to rally on to where we're at right now. No, I'm, I think, I, go, go ahead. Let's change it. You built like a holding company and you built basically a corporate 
environment that basically you kind of alluded to it at the beginning can spin things up. And when I looked at the original like four or five hires, you it's a lot of content operations. It's not your typical hold, hold co where you have financial analysts and financial wizards and accountants. How are you thinking about home base, like the the top of the flywheel and how have you built that out? So yeah, the if I were buying companies, if I were taking bank debt, if I was taking up real estate private equity approach to small business, then I would need a totally different team, period. Like I would need a chief revenue officer and a, and a CFO and all these different things. I'm putting 50 grand in a bank account and that's my venture capital money. Like I'm an angel investor in my own stuff. So we have an idea, boom, I put 50 grand in a brand new bank account on an online bank. It's there the next day. I can use it. I can buy the domain. I can spin up to the hosting. And another thing that people need to understand I've only been at this for seven months and it's, it's chaos. It's chaos. Like everybody thinks, oh, Nick's got it figured out. Nick is Michael Girdley. Nick is going to make billions of dollars. <laughs> no, no. My team is stressed. Like I'm talking to my operators a lot. I'm working more than I like to work. And I like to tell people that I work and I'm having more fun than I've ever had because it makes you feel alive when you're in the trenches building and growing and you're starting to make bets and see leads. Come. I made that I made a tweet about my brother's lawn care company because he was the first guinea pig for bold SEO. We got in and we built links. We just build links for SEO. SEO works where Google, if you got a, links to your, a bunch of links to your website, it makes you rank higher. I bought, we, we sourced 20 links for my brother's lawn care company over two and a half months. And he went from like fourth or fifth on the Google map back to first and his phone started ringing off the hook. And I'm like, holy cow. I called him up. He's like, yeah, I got way too many leads. Like I need to make two hires. I'm quoting two jobs right now. I'm like, what happened? He goes, I have no idea, Nick. My phone just started ringing. I'm like, you know that I bought you like, I paid bold SEO. I paid out of my pocket, bold SEO. And you're going to pay me back. Of course. I bought SEO services from one of my companies. And he goes, oh my gosh, well, keep doing it. Thanks. And so I tweeted about that. I was like, I was like, bold SEO is, you know, a new SEO company where they source links. My brother was a client and his, and his business exploded. He moved to the front of Google. 140 leads came in over the next 24 hours. Our sales guy got 81 calls booked. And that company now has 80 grand a month of re monthly recurring revenue. And it's three months old. You don't think that company's in chaos right now? <laughs> Everybody's stressed chaos out. Chaos from two. Yeah, it's, it's, every, company has, every, every company has one of two problems. You need customers. You don't have enough customers. Or you need employees and processes because you don't have enough employees and processes. I'm in a blessed situation with business where I have a competitive advantage at everything I'm doing. I can hire talent through Shepard. I can use my my other business services to spin things up. My team is good. And I have the power to flip on a faucet of customers instantly. So I made that tweet about Andrew's company and boom, boldseo.com had 100, you know, 100 plus leads and 80 calls. And it's been chaos ever since. It's been the most fun ever because we're booking business. Our sales guy's working around the clock because he's about to make a hundred grand this month because he's crushing it. And we're like, oh, this is fun. That's freaking Okay. But who are your five hires? You have five or six people. You have video. Yeah. So I have a head of content. He has two video editors and a copywriter that work just directly for him. One for my shorts, one for my YouTube and podcasts. He also works on all these webinars that we're doing for RE CostSeg to drive business and, and, and revenue. And then, so that's my personal branding team too. They work on my personal branding as well. Then on the other side, I have Ops, which is basically just Simon right now. He's a freaking badass. And he's 
hiring my bookkeeper. He's recruiting five positions right now. It's uh, we're just building the team very, very quick at some of these companies. And you pay for all those people with the the revenue that you bring in from the companies that you own in the Holdco. Yeah. So, and I'm also spending a lot of money to grow my email list and on this content. So yeah, my monthly burn right now is a hundred grand a month on my holding company. I'm, I'm paying for a lot of email referrals at $2 each. I'm spending 50 grand a month for email referrals. Like say you have an e- a newsletter, Chris, and you say, Hey, one click right here, sign up for Nick's newsletter. It tracks it. And I pay you $2 for, per subscriber. So I'm, I'm, I'm spending to buy 25,000 email subs a month that are all related to business. They're coming from other content creators that are around business. Now that was all overhead. Yeah. So I'm bringing in 150 to 250 grand a month. I'm sending out hundred grand a month. Plus I'm funding checking accounts with 50 grand each as we start about to start a sales company with Jeremiah Lancaster. Like I'm, it's just, I'm having a freaking blast, man. I mean, I feel like everybody thinks, oh, Nick's building these companies. We'll see what happens. I honestly believe that five of these companies will be $50 million businesses in the next 10 years. I'm seeing it happen. Like I know enough to know that when a company's three months old and it gets 150 leads in one day, I just know how that resonates with people and I know how powerful it is. So it's going to be freaking fun, man. It's going to be, it's going to, it's going to be fun. I'm having a blast. All right. Well, we, we do a couple of these a year, so we don't have to check in on the next time. But if, if, and I don't even, you always tend to think out if in 10 years things have gone right, what does it all look like? I think five years is kind of how long it's going to take for this, this round of businesses to mature. I think this foundational, like I have a team of agencies and companies that can accelerate other businesses. I want all of these companies doing five to 10 million of revenue, all of them at least doing one to 2 million of EBITDA, all 10 of these businesses. I don't think any of them will fail. Honestly, the, the hardest one recruit jet, it's tough recruiting business right now. We did a $46,000 placement on Friday of last week with one operator and one thing. So like, they're all just kind of trudging along, not without their stress, obviously. But yeah, five years from now, million a month coming into the whole go in profit, at least. The brokerage is spending, seeing deals. And I am putting my own capital, a lot of my own capital into self-storage and additional ownership stakes in small businesses. And I'm using my distribution, which five years from now will be, who knows if we'll be Tim Ferriss, Ryan Holiday, James Clear level, definitely not Grant Cardone. How big will the reach be? Because I know that that's the flywheel, right? The flywheel going around is, hey, Nick builds these these businesses, funnels the money back into his personal brand and his books, the books funnel into the businesses, and it just keeps going around. It keeps going around. So more customers into the ecosystem, more people are part of these companies. Andrew Wilkinson at Tiny, good friend of mine. Everybody forgets that Tiny, a company that's valued at $800 million plus publicly traded right now that Andrew owns with a partner, several investors now, because he went public. Everybody forgets that the cornerstone of that company, over half of its value, is an agency that Andrew started 11 years ago, a design agency called MetaLab. People forget that. He started it 11 years ago. Everybody thinks about Tiny, that they're going to go buy great businesses like Aeropress, and they do. They're buying amazing companies and they're growing it. He started MetaLab, and that is the powerhouse of his portfolio. That's my plan as well. I mean, I want some of these companies to rise to the top. Three years from now, I'll have operators in all these businesses. They will have made a bunch of hires. And the beautiful thing is we're making hires at all these companies and seeing what these employees have, seeing who's got it. We have a guy named Andres who works at our storage company. The kid is insanely talented. We got him in at $1,500 a month. He was a Twitter hire. He lives in Colombia, And 
he will run one of my companies someday. Like he is that talented. My goal is to build a Rolodex of people who know how to do that, that I can trust to run companies. So then I can have them delegate themselves out of a job, hire a CEO in one of these businesses, and then Andres is free or Simon's free or Colin's free. And I can go buy a business, install that management team and take it from 50 to $100 million and either sell it, hold it, whatever. That's, that's my goal. That's the vision. So the brokerage and special projects with my dad sits on top. My holding company and my management team that gives the fuel and the marketing to all these other companies sits below that. And then we have all the individual entities that I want to become healthy, mature businesses over time. And it will take time. I totally get it. At the same time, I'm, I'm a stu- now I'm the student. It makes, I totally get what you're doing. I know it's not easy. The Nick Huber sweaty startup competitive advantage, I don't think can be, I don't think people who haven't been on this side of things can fully appreciate what it actually does. It is a modern way of doing business and it is gasoline. My only thing is I need to find a business to start with you. Today I'm leaving, oh, we'll leave on this note. Like I got to start something with you. Let's I do blue we'll, we'll, you want to come in on Titan. You want to come in on Titan Risk, the property and casualty insurance company? I think that's going to be a hundred million dollar business 10 years from now. I think Titan Risk, the property and casualty insurance, we have a great operator and my business partner, Dan, is the CEO and the insurance industry sucks. And we are moving away from the traditional producer that plays golf and sends your renewals in and just has you and raises the rate to a more of a consulting model where we are busting our butt to explore all markets at all times and just become a better brokerage. Like it's not, the business model itself is not broken and that business is taking some time. I'm, I'm investing pretty heavily into that business right now. It has done almost nothing in revenue and I'm spending 20 grand a month on payroll, but it's a monster. And as it builds and as it grows, it's going to be a very, very good business. I'll think about that one with you. I, I, I've got some ideas. We'll talk offline and maybe, maybe the next recording will be, hey, this is what we decided to do re- together. It's fun. It's fun. But yeah, it's, it's work. It's stressful and it's not fun. And you're firing people. You're having uncomfortable conversations with people. You know how it is. It's, it's difficult. Thanks for spilling your guts today. This was our best. This was by far our best one. Thanks for having me, Chris. Look, I mean, you're, you've been a massive positive influence on my life and you meeting me when you met me and you're, I don't like I said earlier that everybody's selfish and everybody wants something. And hopefully I'm adding value to you now where it was worth it, but you taking time out of your day where you're making money hand over fist in your real estate company to talk to Nick and tell him how to structure deals and mess with me when I had three self-storage facilities and had no idea what I was doing. Like what, what made you want to pick up the phone and advise me? Like what, cause you, you get hit up all the time for advice and people want to mentor you. And I did the same thing. Like, Hey, Chris, can I pick your brain? And you came in and provided enough value to change the entire trajectory of my life. And like people think all these other companies are exciting. My real estate portfolio is where 80% of my net worth is and will always be. We didn't talk about real estate on this thing, but real estate is the long-term vision for both of us. And you built, you helped me build that. Why, why, why did you do that? I think maybe going a little back to my dad's email, like you kind of want to be the person you hope there's more of in there. I think too, candidly, you came as a warm intro from Adam Blake, who had, who I wouldn't be here today without Adam. And Adam validated you need to talk to Nick. I mean, I don't think you can underestimate how powerful a warm lead is or being top of mind. And um, I think about all the time, like even with the podcast, the podcast, I look at it as like, I have a warm lead almost into everybody now. 
And a warm lead is very, very powerful. And then third was just like, you could tell from talking to you quickly like this, okay, this is somebody that'll be fine. Like, this isn't just like, hey, here's 30 minutes and this person's never going to move the ball forward. And so it was probably just seeing talent, Adam validating you. And then, I don't know, that's why I do the podcast. People are like, why do you do this podcast? You don't need to do a podcast. And the answer is, well, who are you to say I need to do it or not? I love doing it. And a lot of it for me is like, it's a way to give back in a way that I can manage my time and still feel like I'm contributing back to society, which is something that's a core value of mine. I mean, I just, that's what I care about doing. I think the fact that you have going on what you have going on, you have this platform, you have this podcast that's sharing knowledge in so many different areas and making people better all over the place and also taking the time to mentor people. And you don't even tell people really how successful and how much of a badass you actually are. I tell people offline and they're like, what? Chris Powers, the guy who, the guy who tweets about industrial real estate, he's doing that big of stuff. It's like, it's, it's inspiring, man. You're a role model. And I really, really am thankful that you are a part of my life. And yeah, dude, I love, I love you, brother. It's, it's, it's fucking awesome. I love you too. <laughs> I'm thankful that you're part of my life. And like I started, we're just getting started. We, we have an opportunity. I have a lot of fear that something's going to mess this up and I'm going to have cancer or something because man, I'm having way too much fun. Like you, you, yeah, we're both, I mean, I'm 34, you're 38, 37, like 36. 36 years old. Like, where are we going to be when we're 55? I mean, our kids are going to get to know each other. Our wives are going to get to know each other. We're going to be helping a lot of people when we're 55. I'll tell you that much. That's the goal, man. I want to have, I want to be a positive influence on as many people as possible. And I want my kids to want to hang out with me when they leave the house. Those are my two goals. Yeah, I think you're going to do it. And I, and, and iron sharpens iron. We'll just keep keeping on and pushing each other. Thanks, brother. Talk soon. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 